Cephas, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. The pericope, that pericope, the, the section that the translators uh, divided the, the book into when they were translating it. Sometimes you'll see a heading. The pericope for that passage of scripture in the NIV version that I use is make your calling and election sure. And that's something that we're going to talk about today. Calling and election. Um, and I want to start us off by just sharing a little story from my life. So... I was living a, a blessed life when I moved to New York City. I moved right at the end of the pandemic, but before things had quite opened up. It was June 2021, and rent was still very depressed, and it was wonderful. And I, I found an apartment. Everyone has horror stories of the first apartment they get when they move to the city, but somehow I... I found an apartment in Lincoln Square on West 70th Street. It was small, it was a studio, maybe, maybe 200 square feet maximum, very small, but it was on the top floor of a fifth floor walk up, maybe six floors, and I had the whole roof in addition to my little studio. It was private, it was mine. And the, the landlady was wonderful, and she gave me this place at a steal of a price. And my first two years here in the city were amazing. Living in just one of the most beautiful neighborhoods in the city uh, at an affordable price uh, with, with this little uh, cozy home to call my own. In February, that all changed. In February... I received a call from my landlady saying that 
She was currently charging me $700 under market value for this apartment. And when my lease was going to end in June, she was not going to be able to renew it, um, at least not for that price. And so I thought about it, and I, I had to go on a search. My apartment hunt began, and I looked far and, and I was going to say far and low, near and far, high and low, every borough except Staten Island. <laughs> and uh, I saw all kinds of things. I know, I know you know what I saw. I saw scary things, I saw dirty things, I saw sad things. And every now and then, I would get my hopes up. I remember I found one place in Harlem near Columbia, uh, not a bad location, two bedroom for an amazing price. And I went there, and they had an open house, and there were probably a hundred people there viewing the apartment. And I, you know, I, I think I paid the $20 application fee and submitted an application, but I never heard back. And I quickly learned that there's a difference between the way you, the, the, the meaning of this specific phrase depending on which words you emphasize. You've probably heard this phrase, you're invited to apply. Now if someone says, you're invited to apply, that's very different from saying, you're invited to apply. If they say that the first way, emphasizing apply, you're invited to apply, they're not committing to you. They're not making any promises. They are just saying, if you want to pay the $20 application fee, we'll, we'll look at what you have. But if you hear the phrase, I want to invite you to apply, that's a very different thing. That means the person has already seen something in you that they think is special and they are setting something aside for you. This finally happened to me. I met an agent, and he charged, a, he charged an agent's fee, uh, but he treated me well. He, he told me, I think you are really a good fit for this apartment. Uh, I want to show it to you. I'm not showing it to anyone else. I'm just going to show it to you, and I want you to apply. Uh, and so I went and I saw it. It was in South Bronx. Some of you have been there. It's the place I ended up getting. And it has been amazing. I mean, the location is a little farther from you know, some of my friends and things, but it's actually even closer to work and to here uh, than my other, other spot. And it's got as much space as a Midwestern apartment. It's amazing. Um, and I just am still continually impressed uh, by my agent, who, uh, who even negotiated with the landlord to lower the monthly rent uh, to compensate for the fee that I paid him. <laughs> um, so he actually did something and he helped me. Um, and so now when I'm, I'm living in, in this apartment, and I just, I still 
remember, I, I love it, I enjoy it, and I still remember my experience with this agent who specifically looked at me and was like, I think you'll be a good fit for this place. I want you to apply. I have three goals for the sermon today, and I want to get it done quickly. I went longer at the, the first service. Um, but I want to demolish the idea of moralism, legalism, whatever it is, you have to do something in order to get God's approval. We, we try to do that at every sermon here, but I just want to do that, demolish moralism. I want to remember the gospel, and I want to imagine new life, what life can look like with this all together. Uh, and we're going to do this all through this idea of invitation, being invited to apply or just being um, invited. You see, these, um, this passage that I just read, 2 Peter 5, uh, verses 1 through 11, it has right in the middle of it, uh, sorry, 2 Peter 1, 1 through 11, it has right in the middle of it in verses 5 through 9, a section that depending how you read it can, can be beautiful or can feel like a heavy burden, can feel like a list of things that you have to do. If you look at it, 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 9, it says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. And then we see later down in, in verse 10, and it says, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. And so you can read that and you can say, okay, here's this list of things I need to do in order to confirm my calling and election with God. And if I do these things, I won't stumble. God will accept me and my application will be approved. This, uh, this word actually that we see in verse 10 is invitation. We see uh, calling and election, right? The word calling, the root of it in Greek is ecclesia, which if you speak Spanish, that sounds a lot like iglesia, which means church. And if you translate the Greek, uh, that's the word that we use to, uh, to define church today. And it really means a group of people that are invited together. So this word of invitation is integral to what it means to be part of a church community. Um, but again, this question is, is it saying that we have to do this list of things in order to be invited into this community. If you're ever reading a passage of scripture and you're trying to figure out what the main point of it is, it helps to look at the context, right? To look at maybe the narrative arc. We see uh, uh, in, in narrative structure, there are always three points. There's like a, a disrupting event, so you're living kind of a normal status quo life, and then something happens, and it shakes you up, and it makes, makes you question something or creates a problem that you have to solve. Then in the middle, there is a solution where the hero of the story finally comes upon the answer to the problem that was created at the beginning, and they start to apply it, and they start to fix the problems that were created, and then you end up in the resolution at the end where everything has come back together and you live happily ever after. Now, if you look at a passage of scripture, and you see like, okay, it seems like there are multiple problems in this text. There are multiple questions this text is raising. Uh, they might all be valid, but a way to figure out what the most significant one is, is to look at this context and to see what similarity or what common question or problem are all three points in this narrative arc talking about. What is the initial problem all about and what is the resolution about and what is the solution that's in the middle? And if you look at 2 Peter, verses 1, 1 through 3, the very beginning of the book, 
you see this verse, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. What is the theme in that passage? We're seeing words like grace and peace. We're seeing faith. We're seeing the righteousness of our God and Savior, not our own. And then if you go to the end, if you go to uh, 2 Peter 3, verse 18, you see it says, oh, I put it in here. It says, I didn't put it in there. <laughs> okay, just looking it up in my Bible. 3, verse 18, it says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So we're seeing at the front of the book and at the back of the book, it is about grace. Uh, and so knowing that, we can start looking for themes of grace throughout the text because that should be the main question or the main problem or the main thing that is being talked about through all of it. Um, so we're, okay, so we're demolishing this idea of moralism, right? So if the whole thing is about grace, it's about what God has done for us. We read these passages in, in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 1 about all of these virtues and good behaviors that you need to be adding on to it, to yourself. And it can help us start to think that, okay, maybe this has something to do with grace uh, rather than works, or maybe it has something to do with God rather than ourselves. Uh, a powerful theologian and pastor from the early 20th century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in Nazi Germany, he was eventually killed by the Nazi regime uh, for resisting. Um, he wrote an essay, or a lecture, he delivered a lecture in 1929 called, What is Christian Ethic? What is a Christian Ethic? And in this, uh, he, he posits four reasons for why the idea of a Christian ethic does not actually make sense. He argues that it's, it's futile to try to create a Christian ethic. And he says, well, so he doesn't say this. I was, I'm not an expert, uh, so I went to an expert. There's a professor of philosophy and ethics at UT University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, uh, who published an article in 2004 in the Lutheran Journal of Ethics. Um, and he writes, uh, describing Bonhoeffer's lecture, that uh, Bonhoeffer insists on four things. First, that ethics is the construct of human origin, that its roots are historical and not divine. Second, that ethics attends to the dynamics of human action, while a Christian proclamation describes God's action. Third, that the moral character of the New Testament and thus of Christianity has a historical, as a historical reality is derivative and not unique to the revelation disclosed by Christ. In other words, like every, every religion or many, many human traditions have a very similar code of conduct as Christianity. Um, and then finally, that ethics is distinctively marked by assorted norms and commands abstracted away from genuine human action and is therefore inadequate to motivate or define human action. The two reasons that I want to pay the most attention to is his second reason, 
that ethics attends to the dynamics of human action while the Christian proclamation describes God's action. So in ethics, the question is always about what do we do? We are the central figure of ethics. It is about how I personally or you personally should make a decision. The gospel is God-centered. God is the center of that, and it's about what God has done for us. The, the, the fourth reason also that he mentions that I want to just emphasize is that ethics is abstracted away from genuine human action. It's, you know, theoretical, what you should do, uh, and is therefore inadequate to motivate or define human action. And see, the problem is when we're focused so much on how we ought to behave, what we ought to do, it's easy to forget why we're doing it in the first place. And without that, there's no motivation. And so we might be, we might be convinced this is the way we ought to be living, but we won't have any power to actually get there and do it. So we're demolishing this idea of moralism uh, and, and remembering that the story of God is not about what you do for God, it's about what God does for you. But what if you want to do something, right? Donald Miller, uh, an author and uh, author of Blue Like Jazz, I don't know if any of you have read that, um, and now he's gone into marketing and marketing um, expertise. He, he does uh, story brand workshops. Uh, he's realized that we think in terms of stories and we like to be the hero of our own story. So his advice is if you're creating a website or a marketing campaign or whatever, you put the customer as the hero and they will eat it up and they will come to you. Because we want to find a product, we want to find a service that puts us as the hero and helps us solve problems that matter to us. And that's part of what it means to be human. We're all doing things, working on our goals. I'm wearing this shirt today because this, uh, this logo is for Advent Collegiate. Last night we had one of our first events of the semester. Next weekend is our main kickoff uh, weekend and we have a lot of things that we're doing. Doing things is exciting. Uh, it is good to have a vision and to want to get somewhere and to, to gather, right? That's a, that's a beautiful thing, and that's totally fine. And college students, right? I mean, all of us uh, are continually going through this decision-making process of what are we going to turn our life into. But the thing is, it's a lot more fun we can do this, but it's a lot more fun if we get the motive right. If we remember that the motive has... Uh, if we remember within this sphere of Christianity, right, an ultimate kind of meaning, it is about what God has done for us and not what we do for God. So I hope that demolishes the idea of moralism. Bonhoeffer was against it. Uh, I am arguing that Second Peter is against it. It's all about what God has done for us. Um, but where do we go from there? Okay, so, so it's not about what we do. What is, what should we be thinking about? Um, this, this book here is by, um, it's called The Living Reminder by Henry Nouwen. He was a prominent theologian in the latter half of the 20th century, a uh, professor at Yale Divinity School. Um, I never, he was gone before I got there, but um, there was a chapel named after him, a little prayer chapel in the library uh, that I would go and sometimes pray at. 
And this book, A Living Reminder, is a, a beautiful book. It's written to ministers, to pastors, but honestly, I think it applies to anyone. Um, and he's asking questions about how do you maintain a Christian life, a Christian ministry, uh, without it just like growing dull and uh, like robotic or bureaucratic about it. Um, and he writes, he writes this. In both the Old and New Testament, to remember has a central place. Abraham Joshua Heschel says, much of what the Bible demands can be comprised in one word, remember. And Niels Dahl, speaking about early Christianity, says, the first obligation of the apostle vis-a-vis -vis the community beyond founding it is to make the faithful remember what they have received and already know or should know. So it is in keeping with the core of the biblical tradition to look at the ministry in the context of remembrance. Remembering, he goes on to, to, to point out in the book, book three ways that we can remember or be reminded of, of Christ. And the first thing he points out is that the healing effects of remembering or being reminded of something. Um, and this is something that I know personally um, see, when, when we experience something difficult, something traumatic, right, we can be tempted to just try to forget it. Um, but the thing is, we're, our, our past lives with us. Our history lives with us. I haven't read the book, The Body Keeps the Score, but I have it and I want to, and I think it's one that I can recommend. Um, but it's all about how Okay, I'm not even going to summarize a book I don't know. The point is, your, your body, your mind, you are living constantly with everything that you've experienced over the years, right? And things that were traumatic that happened to you, you can forget about them, but you're still going to be impacted by them, affected by them in years to come. So when I was in eighth grade, I was small for my size, or small for my age. I was under five feet tall and like... 85 or 90 pounds. I was, I was a little guy. Uh, I looked up the average eighth grade uh, boy size, and <laughs> it's, um, it's like 5'3 and 115 pounds, something like that. So I was a good, probably 20, 25 pounds underweight, which is, you know, significant of that weight, um, and a good three or four inches uh, below average. So I was a little guy, and I went to a really small school. There were four people in my eighth grade class, three boys and one girl. At recess, we loved to play football. The girl didn't, didn't like to play football, but, but the three of us boys, we would play football. But you need four people to play football. Um, if you're, <laughs> you probably are saying you need a lot more than four people to play football. But if, if you're working with the resources we had, you need at least four. One person to throw the ball, one person to catch the ball on both teams. Uh, if you only have three, you can do the all-time QB thing, but that's, you know, that's, that's rough. Um, so we would always try to pull in one more boy from the lower grades uh, in order to join, in order to have a, a real game. And there was, there was one boy in like the fifth grade who was, you know, three years younger than us, which is significant at that age, and so he was even smaller than me. Um, but he was energetic and we would play. But see, the other two boys in the class were like full-size eighth graders. Uh, and they liked to win and they were friends with each other and they would play um, they like to play together on the same team. And so we started, I started to see this trend 
at recess that every time we came and we picked the teams, they would always work it out so the two of them would end up on the same team. And I, little, little tiny me, would be with the other little tiny fifth grade boy. And recess after recess, day after day, we would keep on losing every single time. We would get paired in these, uh, these teams and we would get slaughtered absolutely every single time. And that was not fun. I got tired of that. And it eventually came to a point where uh, I was at recess one time and that happened and I just said, I'm not gonna play. And I just walked away and I stopped playing. And that, that incident stayed with me for years. Uh, it was something that I was ashamed of, that I felt pain about, I felt excluded, I felt insufficient. And so for years through high school, that was a, a little shame that I, I carried with me. Um, and even into college and even uh, to this day, right, it's like there, there are painful aspects of that memory uh, that, I, that I live with. Um, now, had I forgotten that, I'd be living today maybe with some of these same uh, feelings of insecurity, of um, insufficiency, of smallness, um, but not know why, right? Uh, I'd be affected by it, but I would be ignorant to why I was affected by it. Now, but if now, as a 33-year-old, I can look back and I can remember that time 20 years ago, <laughs> wow, and, and I, can, I can deal with it, right? Like I've grown, I've matured since then, I can cope with it. I can recognize that there were bad things there, there was pain there. I can also see other elements to it, right? And, and maybe empathize with what the other boys were going through and um, recognize that I'm a different person now or I've grown, you know. I can, I can work things out and by remembering, I can be healed, right? Not by forgetting, but actually by remembering, I can think through it and I can be healed. And so, so that's why it's important to remember the gospel. That's also why it's important to remember other tragedies and problems from our history, right? Personally or as a society. Why it's important to remember injustices from the past. Not so that we wallow in shame and like continue to feel terrible about something, but that so we can heal from it, learn lessons from it. If you forget the past, right, you're doomed to repeat it. If you remember the past, you can heal from it and you can grow. What happens to you? Oh, there's another passage from now and that I really want to read. Uh, he quotes uh, Eli Wiesel, uh, the, the uh, Jewish man who lived through the concentration camps, camps in Germany, right? And he's gone on to become an author and uh, a significant figure, again, in the, the latter half of the 20th century. Um, and Nowen is quoting Wiesel when he says that, um, well, so what pained Wiesel the most when he went back to the place where he had been uh, interned at, uh, the, the camp, what pained him most was the people, was that the people of Sighet, which was the, the town 
um, had erased the Jews from their memory. He writes, I was not angry with the people of Siget for having driven out their neighbors of yesterday, nor for having denied them. If I was angry at all, it was for having forgotten them. So quickly, so completely, Jews have been driven, out, driven not only out of town, but out of time as well. And then, and then uh, Nowen goes on to say, this story suggests that to forget our sins may be an even greater sin than to commit them. Why? Because what is forgotten cannot be healed. And that which cannot be healed easily becomes the cause of greater evil. What happens to you, it's important to remember. It's important to remember your personal history. It's important to remember our social history. What happens to you when you remember your personal spiritual history with God? When you go back to the beginning, why you started believing or feeling things about God, about Jesus in the first place. We read these passages, right, that have ethical or moral teachings, and sometimes we get focused on them, right, and, and end up making our lives revolve around them. But if you go back to your first experiences with God, they probably weren't about that. They probably weren't, you probably weren't initially enraptured with the beauty of Christ when you read the command, thou shalt not kill. You know, it probably made sense to you. It was like, yeah, of course. I know for me personally, in high school, I was reading the Bible and, 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 and it finally dawned on me that uh, that verse, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like, it finally dawned on me that, that I, I felt like I had a relationship with God and that relationship was actually more valuable than anything else in life. And maybe you've had experiences like that also, where you, when you first came to God, when you first felt like this was something you wanted to be a part of, you had this overwhelming sense of relationship with God, of overwhelming love of God toward you. This passage is saying God invited you. But it's not only saying he invited you. It's saying God chose you. Verses 5 through 9, that, that list of things to do, they're not the centerpiece of the passage. Because if they're the centerpiece, then that means you are the centerpiece. And if you are the centerpiece, that means it's not a story about God. It's a story about you. But in verse 10, we see that we were invited. Let me read it. It says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Calling, ecclesia, invitation. Election. Another word for that is chosenness. You were invited by God, and God chose you. God chose you specifically. And that is what this passage is about. Whatever in our lives reminds us of this, 
is in line with the gospel. Whatever in our life makes us forget our invitation and our chosenness is not in line with the gospel. Just like getting an apartment. I like to use this, this uh, analogy. Just like getting an apartment. You're invited and you're chosen. You have the apartment. You have the roof over your head protecting you from the rain. You have the walls around you protecting, protecting you from thieves. You have the foundation under your feet protecting you from cockroaches. And you can move in and you can get settled and you can get comfortable. This list of things, verses five through nine, they're not bad things. They're beautiful things. For this reason, add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. I like to think of these things as the decorations in the house. Add to your house, add to your faith, goodness, the, the couch of goodness. Add to your faith the, the, uh, the, the, the bookcase of knowledge with all the books in it. Add the TV stand of self-control, right? Add the, maybe you put, a, you probably can't fit a treadmill in here. That's the only thing that's coming to mind right now. No one has a treadmill in their New York apartment, but um, the treadmill of perseverance, right? Add to, add to that the, the mirror of godliness. I don't know, I'm just making things up here. These things are what you put in your house to make it a wonderful living experience. These are the things that you can add to what God has already provided, not for protection, not for safety, not for security, not for stability, but just to enjoy life. Because none of these things will make your life worse. These things are meant to enhance and enrich us. And when you have a nice house like that, when you've decorated it, when you've got the, the, throw, pill the throw pillows and the cushions and the, the blankets, you can invite people over. And your house, your faith, your life can become a hospitable place to invite other people into, to invite other people to experience. And so I just want to encourage all of you to demolish moralism, to remember this gospel house that God has created for you. And while you're having fun decorating it, to let everything remind you that you are invited and you are chosen.